got too many different recorders. We've got a phone recording, we've got a, a laptop monitoring the conversation, and I've, I've started to try and use a little audio, handheld audio, to capture just audio for the podcast later. So I think I got them all three going now. So good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us. If you have a prayer card with you, or if you don't, get it off of the photos section there. And uh, and let's pray together the prayer before the study of Scripture. And then we'll dive right in to the last part, part four of Matthew chapter five. Let us pray. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies. And unto you we give all glory and praise, together with our Father who is from everlasting, and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for praying along with me. I love that prayer. And uh, Judas said, uh, Cindy said, I'll check with Mark. Judas said, evening is good for me. Uh, Don't forget, tell me which evenings. Give me some comments there to tell me which evenings. Is there any that are out? Uh, So again, we're not going to make this change right away, but I just don't want to get faced with canceling a lot. Well, let's look at the scripture. Levi's call. I'll begin reading with verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything and rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. He told them a parable also. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it upon an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Wow, there's a lot there. I don't usually cover this long of a section, but it it just happens that all in one conversation in this one evening, and I didn't really want to split it up, so we're going to try and get through it. 
I've got another comment. Any evening is good for me from Sue. Whatever works for the others and you. Thank you, Sue. Um, let's dive into this scripture. Let's notice a few things. This is after, it says after this. Jesus had just been in the home where he was healing lots of people. And remember, the paralytic was let down through the roof. That was our last study. And he healed the paralytic. And, uh, and so this is after this. So it's very soon after this, maybe the next day. It says he went out. So he's walking through the town. And we, we miss so much in the English language. That's why I, I, I love to, to always compare things to the Greek. And I want to share these nuggets of, of wisdom in Greek with you. Not that I'm a Greek scholar. I'm not. I can look it up. I can teach you how to look it up. Uh, Doyne, thanks for joining us today. But, but there's something that's missed in the English right away here. It says, Jesus, after this, he went out and he saw a tax collector and named Levi sitting in his tax office. That's a very nondescript uh, thing. You just walk out and you saw him. But when you see this word for saw in the Greek, now this word, let me look at my notes here because I want to make sure I, it's, a, it's a mouthful. Theaomahi. Theaomahi. Something like that. That Greek word means to intensely gaze upon. Jesus didn't just see Levi and say, Hey, Levi, come follow me. Jesus stopped and looked at Levi. He stared at him. It means to literally stare at him. So it takes a moment to stare at someone and you get their attention. You know what that feels like. It's an odd feeling. Can you imagine Jesus staring at you? You know you're a sinner. You know what your life is like. You, 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 you've heard the rumors that this is Jesus of Nazareth and he's the Messiah and he's doing miracles and he's looking into my soul. He looks into Levi's soul and he, and he simply says, come follow me. And he does. It says that Levi says he left everything to go and follow him. Well, let's think about this for a minute. That's, that's a pretty remarkable encounter. First of all, Levi's a tax collector. Let's talk about tax collectors. Um, not much has changed in 2,000 years. Uh, tax collectors are probably some of the most unpopular people around. Uh, so if you work for the IRS and you're listening to this, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to insult you. It's just that nobody wants to pay your tax. <laughs> and, and you're going to say, well, we're just, the, we're just the collectors. Don't blame us. And that's true more in our modern society. But in that day, it wasn't. There were, let me give you a little history. There were, no, there were at least six different taxes that could be collected, types of taxes, and many within one category. So let me give you some of the categories. Now, the Roman government ruled what they called Palestine, we know as Israel. So it's a Roman province. And the Romans liked to farm out that kind of work. They hired locals to do the tax collecting. Rome had its stated amount of tax, and if you could collect more, you could keep the difference. So the realities were that often the tax collectors did collect more because you don't really know what your tax is. I mean, Rome's a long ways away. There's no newspapers. There's no... There's no news agencies. There's no, there's no way of really knowing beyond what you tell me, and you have authority as a tax collector, what I owe. So tax collectors became known as robbers and thieves. I mean, they, these guys are as unpopular 
as murderers, robbers, and thieves. I mean, that, that's just what they are. Um, it, it felt that way. So first one was a poll tax. A poll tax was a tax on everyone just because you're alive. Uh, men between the ages of 14 and 65 had to pay the poll tax, and women between the ages of 12 and 65 had to pay the poll tax. Then there was what was called a ground tax. I thought this was interesting because it's kind of like a severance tax. You know, today we call them severance taxes. So what they were doing was all of all the grain or the crops that were grown, one-tenth had to be paid in a tax. And then of oil and wines that were harvested, one-fifth had to be paid in a tax. So that's like 20%, you know, 10% to 20%. Um, today we call those severance taxes. You know, if we tax the oil, for instance, uh, that comes out of the ground. So this idea, I guess that kind of, it, it kind of comes back to me because I remember many years ago, 1982, when I was running for the state legislature, um, and I won't, uh, I won't tell you my politics then, they're, they're a lot different today, and I don't like to get political here, but back then, there was a new thing being uh, talked about in Kansas, and it was called the severance tax, and it was a severance tax on oil as it leaves the ground. However many barrels you got out of the ground, they were taxed, they were to be taxed at a certain rate. The governor, who was at the time was John Carlin. And uh, he came up with this idea to help the state with a shortfall and he, the severance tax. Well, I'm a candidate for public office. I have to take an opinion on it. And remember, I was only 21 years old. I was 21 years old and thought I knew everything. Um, I now know that I knew nothing, <laughs> really. But uh, thought I was pretty smart. And, and, and when I took that position, the district that I was running in, was in Harvey County, the city of Newton and North Newton, and, and a couple of townships, three townships, I think, in Harvey County, and then two townships in Butler County. That was called the 72nd District at that time. I don't know if it's still the same or not. But um, Newton was, or Harvey County, I should say, was the second most... A Republican registered county in the state. More Republicans, second most Republicans of all the state counties. Uh, I was running as a Democrat. Okay, I'll just confess here. This we're talking about Levi was I was running as a Democrat. So if you're a Democrat, God bless you. Uh, I don't like to take sides anymore because I'm a Christian above all and a minister of the gospel. Um, but in that day, I had to take a side. I had to take a stand. And uh, the minute I chose, I said I'm, I was in favor of the severance tax. Wow. Uh, I actually think I might have won the election. I came so close. Uh, Channel 10 had me the projected winner at 10 o'clock at night on the cake news. And uh, all the paper ballots is the only way to vote then. And, uh, of course, they were voted by paper ballots counted by hand. And I won in the city of Newton and North Newton pretty well. But I lost big in those two townships in Butler County, which was what, think about Butler County, oil refineries. And that was huge. And I think it was that issue that lost the race for me. Now, I'm glad I lost. Now I look back, my life wouldn't have been the same. I wouldn't be right here. Wouldn't have met my wife. Wouldn't, wouldn't, who knows where I'd be in serving the Lord. So God is good always. Uh, and, and God is always good. So, but the severance tax, they had to pay a severance tax. Uh, and they could pay it in kind, meaning with grain and oil and wine, or convert, convert it to money. 
There was also an income tax. 1% of a person's income had to be paid. There were duties on all kinds of things. If you used the marketplace, if you used the harbor, if you had a cart that you pulled through the marketplace, you were taxed on the cart. You were taxed on the horse that drew the cart or the donkey. Um, about everything you could use had a duty on it of some type. They even had um, a sales tax. Anything you purchased in the marketplace had a sales tax. They even had, and the sixth kind that I was able to find in, in my research was an export and import or import-export tax. So this whole idea of taxation is definitely not something new. And Levi's job was a tax collector. And so Jesus, it says here, he sees him sitting at his tax office. Now this is probably just a table in the marketplace that, that, he, that he has set up there. And he has the right as a tax collector to stop you and say, show me what's in your bag. I mean, if he thought you were carrying a cart full of stuff, I mean, and so he could decide how to impose a tax upon you. They had a lot of authority. Rome gave them a lot of authority because they knew they needed that authority to collect that tax. So since you didn't know if he was honest or not, you didn't know if he was telling you the truth, oh, it's 1%, or he could say it's one and a quarter percent and keep the quarter for himself or whatever. There was a lot of graft and a lot of corruption in the tax system in Israel. So people hated tax collectors. They just hated them. And so naturally, their only friends are people like them, people that are outcasts. And so what we see happening here is Jesus gazing, staring into Matthew or Levi's soul. Hi, Beverly. Thanks for joining us. And, and, and it's I'm sure that Levi's heard of him. Everybody's heard of Jesus at this point. And Jesus can look into his soul and Jesus can see, is this guy good or is he bad? Is this guy have, does this guy have a, a heart that wishes he could break out of this type of lifestyle? He really doesn't. He has some conviction about what he does. I believe that was Levi. I believe Jesus saw the good in him. Even though he was in a corrupt occupation, Jesus saw the good in him. Jesus saw his heart and called him out of it. And Levi responded. Levi left everything. It says he left everything and followed him. Now, it says that more than that, it says that he made him a great feast in the next verse, in verse 29. He made him a great feast in his house. Probably had a nice house because he made a lot of money. More than the average person around there. And he, he throws a great feast. There's a lot of people there. But who's there? It's just the other, what the Pharisees like to call sinners. Uh, there was this self-righteous attitude in the Pharisees. The Pharisees always saw everybody as good or bad. They saw you were either trying to be righteous according to the law, or you were a blatant sinner, like a prostitute, or a tax collector, or a murderer, or, or a, you know, some type of a thief or a person with a bad reputation that really wasn't trying to make it in, in society in, in a good way. And, and the Pharisees saw it as us and them. And the Pharisees had kind of helped develop the, the thought of the Jewish people that you don't associate with those kind of people. Well, that's a problem. For Jesus, because Jesus came to love everyone. And Jesus shows it right here. And so he sits down with them and he eats with them. It is 
a symbol of acceptance to sit at a table and eat with someone. If you sat in the Middle East con- in the culture, and it, it still is this way, I think it's true in almost any society, but uh, I don't know that for a fact, but to sit down and have fellowship dinner to, t- to eat with them is a symbol that you accept them for who they are and as, as a person, as a friend. And so Jesus does that. And, you know, you can tell the crowds that follow, the Pharisees weren't invited to this dinner, but they're there. Most of the houses had open courtyards, and so they were probably eating in a big courtyard. And the Pharisees are watching, because they're watching everything Jesus does. And they're watching him and his disciples in there with these uh, sinners and tax collectors. And it says in verse 30, the Pharisees began mumbling. Some of yours, mine says murmured. Some say mumbling. Some say grumbling uh, against his disciples. Now, it doesn't say they're grumbling at Jesus. It says they're grumbling against his disciples. Jesus is probably up there at the head of the table with Levi and maybe some of the few disciples he's called so far as people that have been kind of hanging out with him or towards the back, and the Pharisees start grumbling to them. Now, this word grumbling is an interesting word also. We get this out of, out of the Greek language. It's uh, gangudso, gangudso, G-O-N-G, no, G, that's how, it, phonetically we would say G-O-N-G, G-O-O-D-Z-O, but it's really G-O-G-G-A-Z-O, gangudso. Now, this word is the same word in, in its Hebrew counterpart, if you were to read through the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, we would find the same word back in the book of Numbers. You remember when the children of Israel are in the desert experience after being delivered from Egypt, and they're grumbling, it says. They're, they're, they're just mad at God. They're grumbling about their situation. They wish they hadn't, wish they were back in Egypt. Um, just it blows your mind to think that. And so there's this grumbling spirit, this grumbling attitude. And Jesus obviously hears them because it says Jesus responds to them, not the disciples. It says Jesus turns to them. They're saying, this is their grumble. Why does your master eat? Why do you eat with and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answers them and says, those who are well have no need of a physician. So here's a, here's a wise saying from Jesus that we do well to listen to. If you're well, you have no need of a physician. But he said, those who are sick do. And I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now the truth is, there was no one righteous. The Pharisees thought they were. They don't see themselves as sick. They see themselves as righteous. So Jesus is speaking about how they see themselves. Well, he's saying, I've come to call the sinners to repentance. You guys think you're okay. Well, we'll see about that in the end. But if you're truly uh, repentant, if you've got a, a heart that's willing to hear the gospel, like Levi did, you're going to respond to the, the overture of love that Jesus, uh, that Jesus brings. And, and so I think there's a, there's a practical point here that we do really well to think about. Sin is less of a, uh, a state of being and more of a sickness or an illness. I think the church does best in ministry when it understands that the sin in humanity is an illness. It's a sickness. It's a disease. And Jesus is the physician. Jesus is the cure. And, and their people are sick. They're not, in, they're not bad people. 
the, the Pharisees thought they were bad people. No, they're just people like you and I, but they're sick. Well, you know, and, and we can extrapolate that out. And we know that, you know, from the teachings of Christianity, and we find them in the book of Romans, Paul says, everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all are sinners. We all are sick. We all need a Savior. But if it's, if, if people are, and, and this is a deep theological point, so I might as well spend a minute or two on it. There's really two ways that Christianity throughout history has looked at humankind, at humanity. Intrinsically bad or intrinsically good. Part of the problem was that the, the gulf in that was, was widened during the 4th, 5th century period when some Christian writers, like St. Augustine, a good man, but had some mm, thoughts on sin that were a little difficult to swallow, St. Augustine began to say um, that humanity was evil because we're born in sin. What he began to talk about as original sin, and that's a deep theological concept there, original sin. And uh, he saw humanity as tainted by that original sin, and therefore unsavable, uh, and, and nothing good in us, uh, totally depraved, if you will. And that led to some theological teachings that, uh, that eventually became, not that Augustine taught them, eventually became, and through the Protestant Reformation, that, that um, there is, there's no salvation if you die with this stain of original sin on your soul. And the only way to get rid of that stain of original sin was to baptize. So therefore, start baptizing people the minute they're born, uh, baptizing infants and things. And I'm not against infant baptism, but I, I love it for a whole different reason. And this isn't, I've talked about that before, and this isn't a subject on that, but uh, I, I love it for a covenantal reason, but not just this washing of original sin. So that was Augustine, 4th, 5th century, starts to veer off a little bit in his teachings. But the ancient Christian teaching is seen more in, we see this in Eastern Christian thought. If we really study some of the early Christian fathers, uh, the early Greek fathers especially, we see that they taught not in a, they didn't use the word original sin, they used the word ancestral sin. And the thought is that, yes, we're all sinners, and yes, we're all born into a sinful world, and what we have inherited is the effect of the original sin of Adam and Eve, if you will. And we inherit that effect, not that guilt. And there's a huge difference there. Huge theological difference there. If humanity, if you and I, are guilty of Adam's sin, well, how is that fair? How, how is that a loving God who has condemned everyone to hell no choice because they're guilty of Adam's sin. Now, I don't think that's good theological teaching. I don't think that's good scriptural uh, exegetics. But I do believe scripture teaches us. Because in the beginning, it says God created and it was very good. When he came to humanity, he said it was very good. 
Humanity is very good, but we're marred. We're, 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 we're under the effects of sin, this sickness, this disease called sin. And there's only one cure for it, and that is Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And so we best see humanity as people that are sick. Like Jesus says here, I've come to call, I've come to help cure the sick. And if that's true, then the church, which is the body of Christ, we are his disciples today. We're the Levi's, we're the, we're the, the Jameses and, and the Johns and all. We are the church of today. If that's true, then the church is the hospital. The best image we can have for the church of Jesus Christ is the hospital. The place where the sick can come and be cured. I think there's not enough of that image being looked at in in our world today. I think the church has wandered off by her own teachings in many different denominations, of course. I'll look at it a little differently. But I think they've kind of wandered off and lost some of the original beauty of the model of the church in the beginning was the hospital. And the sinner is sick. So, enough on that. Let's move on just a little bit further. Um, and, and so Jesus, it says then, he says, they said to him, they carry on the conversation with him. They're not happy with his answer about uh, this, this idea that we've just come, I've come to help the sick. And so they said, I've got a, they say basically, we've got another problem with you, Jesus. You see, John's disciples, and we're talking about John the Baptist, John's disciples would fast and offer prayers. You, this supposedly great rabbi, and your disciples, you're not even obeying the fast days. Probably they shouldn't have. This tells us they probably shouldn't have been eating at that dinner. If they were good Jews, they probably should not have been eating at that dinner. See, Jews had a fast. Some scholars think it was every Monday and Thursday, and I've seen other scholars that say it was every Tuesday and Thursday. Um, But... They had a fast that you had to obey on certain days. That was just part of the, the, the given laws of the time, the Mosaic laws. Now, that fast, a good Jew would observe. A sinner probably wouldn't. Uh, or one of these like Levi and people that really weren't trying to practice their faith or, or to be righteous in some measure or trying to be. And so here they are, maybe it's a Tuesday night or a Thursday night or whatever, and they're sitting around eating and drinking at this party, and and this is just really getting to the Pharisees, because they're like, you don't even, you claim you're a great teacher, and you don't even have your disciples fast and offer the prayers that John the Baptist did his. I mean, clearly they're trying to compare John and Jesus, and the people love John the Baptist. Well, John was an obedient Jew. He, He did things uh, like he was called to be. He was the Messiah. But Jesus has come for a different purpose than John the Baptist. And that's going to come out in some of these little words, the next few words of Jesus. So Jesus says to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? That's a question. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Well, obvious answer is no. I mean, who wants to go to a wedding and have to not eat anything because you're fasting. A wedding by its very nature is a time of celebration. Uh, Weddings in that culture especially, they would last often for a period of seven days, a whole week long, 
celebration. Dinners, gatherings, parties. Uh, you know that falls over a Tuesday or a Thursday or different fast days. And if it was a part of that celebration, you were exempt from the fast. Even the Pharisees knew that. They knew that. They know the answer that Jesus to the question Jesus is asking. And he's, they don't like it because he's pointing out to them, you break the fast too. When you're at a wedding celebration, you break the fast too. And obviously Jesus is teaching them he's the bridegroom. Everyone is the, is the, uh, the, uh, are the guests. He's the bridegroom. And the wedding feast is his kingdom. And so we're seeing, uh, we're seeing that Jesus is saying, I'm here. I'm in the fast. I mean, I'm in the feast. I'm in the, I'm in the wedding celebration. These are my guests. And, and my bride, of course, is the world he's come to save. Uh, and there's no way they can fast. He says, now there's coming a time, he goes on to say, um, the days will come, verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And that's today. Jesus was taken away. And the church, the disciples, did begin fasting again. They began setting now, But Christians, being followers of Jesus, they set up a new fast. They, the Jews in the temple and always did their Tuesday, Thursday, or Monday, Thursday. The Christians went Wednesday, Friday. So Wednesday and Friday, if you've ever wondered why, this is why. They wanted to be different from the Jews. Friday obviously commemorates the day that Jesus died. Wednesday commemorates the beginning, in Holy Week, the beginning of, of that last 24-hour period, if you will, uh, before the cross. And, and so Wednesdays and, and Fridays are great fasting days for us as Christians in spiritual discipline. I know every church, every denomination has different rules. Many don't have any rules. A few have strict rules. But understand, fasting is beautiful, and it is for our benefit. It is, it, and we don't have time to go into all of that fasting today, but there will be, there'll be times for that, and I've taught on that before. But fasting is a spiritual discipline that is given to us by God in both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant because it teaches us to order our priorities. Jesus himself says over and over in his ministry, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and then follow me. Part of that denying ourself is being willing to fast. And biblical fasting always involved food. I think it's a bit of a cop-out when we say we can't fast with food. We're going to fast from TV or we're going to fast from electronics. And, and those are good things. There's nothing wrong with fasting from them. But it's a cop-out if we say we, we're doing that instead of food. Food, try fasting. If you don't fast from I realize there are people that are diabetics and have other issues. You can still figure out ways to fast within those parameters. But food is what drives us. Believe me, it is what drives us. We have whole network, entertainment networks built around food. Food network. I mean, it's one of my favorite channels. Uh, and I love food. I love to eat. I can sit and look at gourmet meals on the TV and figure out how to cook them. And, but taking, that becomes such a desire to us. And, and 
that learning how to conquer those desires for the sake of spiritual growth means everything. Because if we can't conquer our own uh, spiritual, excuse me, if we can't conquer our own physical desire for something food-oriented, how are we ever going to conquer the physical desire for something really sinful? You see the comparison. So taming our appetite, if you will, for, for food can help us tame our appetite for sinful behaviors. So fasting and prayer linked together, very, very important in the life of a Christian. Um, so much so that it's pretty difficult to really be what you need to be as a believer if you never fast and, and never really pray. Um, so a lot more we could say about that, but I don't have time for that right now. Um, so Jesus goes into a parable. He tells them kind of some closing thoughts here. He tells them uh, a, a couple of parables. Jesus always has a parable to pull out of his pocket. And he, and he talks about the first one. He says, no one takes a piece uh, from a new garment and puts it on an old. Uh, because if you take a new piece and put it on an old, sew it to the old, you, when you wash it, the new one's going to shrink and it tears away and the old is worse than before. Now, this is a real story to me because I grew up in an era when, uh, as a little boy, I would get holes in my jeans and the knees and my mother would patch them. I always hated those patches. They looked goofy. Uh, but I remember watching her do it and I remember her... Uh, specifically teaching this principle, she would get that patch and she would always, I guess you could buy new patches. She would never buy new patches. She would use old material that was of like kind that had already been washed and shrunk because she would say, if you put this new one on there, it's just going to shrink. The new piece is going to shrink. So that's a real world example to me from my era growing up. But what Jesus is, is saying is that, is that, New and old don't mix really well. But there's a place for both. Now, he goes a little deeper and he talks about the wineskins. He said, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Same principle. Now, I don't know a lot about wine, obviously, and I'm not a winemaker or anything, but I do know from just a little elementary study that, that wine, in the process of fermentation, okay, uh, wine gives off gases. The fruit gives off gases as it ferments. And, and, and today, of course, we use bottles. But then everything was a, it was a skin of an animal. The bottle was sh shaped by the skin of an animal. There was no glass blowing and using of that kind of thing. And, and so if you had new wine, which hasn't fermented yet, and you put it in an old one, as those gases develop it's gonna it's gonna eventually burst that old skin so you put new wine in new wine skins okay um so jesus says but new wine verse 38 but new wine must be put into fresh wine skins so that as the fresh begins to as the as the wine begins to ferment and the gases begin to develop the fresh is aging with it it's maturing with it and it's growing with it where the old one has lost its elasticity it's just it is what it is and it can't 
bend and move and shape with it. Now, this is a pretty, I think, a pretty profound analogy for us. Um, interestingly enough, that last verse, 39, no one, Jesus said, and no one drinking old wine desires the new, for he says the old is good. This has been a, this is a very hard to understand phrase. It's the only place where it's ever been repeated. Um, Jesus isn't saying that old is bad and new is always good. He's not saying that. He's saying they're different and they have different purposes. Okay? And he's saying definitely. So before we get the, the notion that everything has to be new in order to have merit and value and good, because that's a problem in our in the church world, and Jesus knew it would be. It's a pro, It's been a problem in the modern church world. There are some people that think everything has to always be continuously new. Nothing old is good. Nothing gold has value. We got to always be changing, and that becomes a challenge because one of the hardest things for people to do is change. Because like old wineskins, we lose some of our elasticity. I guess. Um, but, but Jesus isn't saying the old is bad. He's saying the old is good. He's just saying there's a proper place and a proper use for all of it. So likewise, we shouldn't be saying that new things in churches are bad. Okay? Nothing is in and of itself bad. It, it, we must be trying some new things throughout the years or else we're not going to grow. We're not going to change. But the important thing is, are we doing them for the right reasons? And do they have a solid theological and, and spiritual foundation. And Sylvia said, I uh, got a note here, but here he says the old is better. Yes, he's saying the old is good. He's not saying it's better. He's saying it's good. I really believe that's what he's saying. And no one after drinking old wine desires the new. Okay. So in other words, people that are used to the old don't always desire the new when it comes around. But new people might desire the new, and I think that's something we, we have to be careful to read in here. But the old is good. He's not devaluing the old at all, but he's also not devaluing the new. They need them both. Why? Because guess what happens to the new? It becomes old. It matures. Now, if we really want to talk about wine, wine, I don't know anything about wine, really, but I know wine always is said that it gets better with age. That's the maturity. Uh, and I think that's true of all of us, too. I think we get better with age. But I think we, we are supposed to be getting better. Our faith is supposed to be getting better. Our spirit is supposed to be getting better. Our, our spiritual growth is supposed to be getting better with, with age. And old is good. But there's still a place for new, and new is good, too. Let's just make sure we, we fit them. So, so it's a huge challenge for church as today that are constantly trying to fit new into old. And it doesn't work, and they burst. So it takes a lot of wisdom and discernment for churches to be able to know how and when to mix new and old and what's going to work and what isn't. So it's a deep subject. It's a deep well. But I think Jesus' words here are profound. Let's don't miss that he is not devaluing the old. He's not devaluing the new either. And he is emphatically stating the old is good. So that means the new will become better as it ages. Well, we could take that a lot of different directions, but we're, we're basically out of time. 
This has been a big section. Let me look at my notes here. And I don't always like to go this long of a section because there's so much I want to say about it. Um, let's see if see what I missed here. Um, yeah, I just want to end on this thought with you. The idea of, of the wedding feast. I, I want us to end on this thought. What is it in your life? What is it in your life that truly brings you joy? If you can look at your life right now and there is no joy, that's sad. And, and I realize there's a lot of people struggling having come through this pandemic or going through, we're not through it, but going through this pandemic. A lot of joy has been robbed in people. Um, I, I, I love to go out and just, I love to go out and sit in a coffee shop and talk to people and do things. I love to go into uh, stores and just gather with people and, and so many things that I love to do. Everything's just utility now. It's just, you can go in, get your stuff, get out. You can't sit down here. You can't do that. It, it, we're, we're in a period right now where there's a lot of the joy of being a people together is, is being robbed from us. It's, it's being put on a shelf. I truly believe it's going to come back, but for a time it's, been put on a shelf and, and it's been put on a shelf in the name of safety and, and and for a lot of things but eventually things will give I really believe that the, the question is let's don't let's don't lose our joy in the process because even if we are and I there's people around the country here in Wichita and Kansas it's not really quarantined anymore but there are places around the country where it still is they're not open. They're not getting out of their houses. They're not doing, and, and that's, that's hard. I mean, six months of that is really hard. Um, and, and in some of our elderly, they are still in that position, even here in Kansas. And, and I think they're the hardest hit by this. I really do. Because they, they're almost like prisoners. They can't get out. And, and that, I know some are probably listening to me uh, on this broadcast. But I want you to hear we have to find the joy. Jesus, the bridegroom, he's away physically, but he's with us spiritually. And the Christian faith is to be a faith of joy, regardless of our circumstances. One of the things we have to learn as we go forward, we can't predict the future. I can't tell you that everything's going to come back. I'm just telling you, I don't believe that this whole uh, thing of quarantine and everything is going to last. I really don't believe it. I, scientifically, I don't think it holds up. Yes, it's a virus. Yes, it's it's real. But the, the numbers aren't there. The numbers are not there to justify keeping us shut down forever. Uh, there's always been disease. There will always be disease. There will always be novel viruses. And we've learned a lot now how to approach things and when and how masks can be used and good and things. But uh, but there's a lot of fear right now in people that this is just going to be the way it always is. Suicide numbers are going off the chart. I mean, the, the, the funeral I did last week was a suicide that I had to cancel Bible study for. I just, my heart is breaking for people whose joy is gone. So let's find the joy. As we close Bible study today, I want to challenge you all to think about what, is, what can you do in your present circumstances, in your present surroundings that would bring you joy. And do it. Uh, contact people. Call them up. Whatever it is. Go make another cup of 
bananas foster coffee. Uh, that brings me joy. It's a silly, silly excuse, but but uh, but wow, let's look for the joy because we truth is we should be fasting, we should be praying, but we should also be people of joy. Christians should be the most joyful people in the world. Let's never ever forget that because joy is winsome. Jesus is beautiful. Jesus is winsome. Everything about Jesus Christ. Matthew, or Levi, as we've learned today, Levi followed Jesus because he was beautiful and he was winsome and he, 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 he saw beauty in him and he was attracted to him. He'd heard of the good. He could see the good in Jesus' eyes. He, he didn't go following because he felt guilty and he didn't. I'm afraid that guy's going to throw me into hell someday if I don't go follow him. No, 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 no. It was a joyful attraction. That's important. Jesus is trying to attract all of us uh, with that joyful attraction. So, uh, old saying when I was growing up, you catch more flies with honey than you do vinegar. Let our Christianity be honey. Let it be joyful. Let it be sweet. Let our spirits be joyful and sweet. I need that medicine just as much as I'm preaching it here this morning. So uh, I'm not the perfect uh, joyful person, that's for sure. We're all human. We all have our moments. But thank you for joining me and spending some time with me today in Luke chapter 5. Next week, we're going to jump into Luke chapter 6. And we will. Uh, I'm, I'm going to keep considering whether we should change this or not. I want to hear back from you. Feel free to continue to post on this thread or you can private message me. I, I really haven't heard any specific evenings or nights that would work uh, or, or an earlier morning. I did hear that from one person. I think Dennis said an earlier morning. Earlier in the morning might be good too um, because I've just got that 10, 11 o'clock time is prime time for funerals and I'm just... I'm just a, a little bit afraid of having to cancel too often because I love doing this. I love it that you're that you're uh, tuning in with me. So thank you. Uh, thank you for all of you that have joined. God bless you. Let me pray for you as we close today. Father in heaven, I pray that you would just, as Jesus gazed into to Levi's eyes, I pray that you would just gaze down upon your children now. Let them see turn their eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth, the pandemics, the quarantines, the pains, the, the, the sickness, the disease, all the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace, the joy of knowing you. And I pray that for everyone listening to this, everyone who will ever listen to this. And I pray it in the strong name of Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks for spending some time with me today. It's great to see you again. Goodbye.